I point at you. I'm like, yes. we're going. It's recording. Where are we going? Mother. <laughs> Tony, I know you have a kid. Yeah, yeah. I know you have a kid, dude, but seriously. Yeah. Your sleep schedule's not that fucked. Oh, you think that. <laughs> oh, you think that, sir. Yeah, you are sadly good. mistaken. That's fair enough. Well, if I may. Hello and welcome to Tall and Short with Tim and Tony. I'm Tim. And I'm Tony. Wait. Wait, re- re- hang on, reverse that. Welcome to Tall and Short with Tim and Tony. Hi, t- I'm Tony. And I'm Tim. Good enough. It's close enough. Yep. Why aren't you working? Just like last episode, Tony's laptop ah! is, is very. Tony and his laptop are having a very, very uh, difficult discussion I hate with themselves. You. <laughs> Once again, we are recording this in advance. This is uh, pretty much they think the last week of the last Tuesday. <laughs> Tony just flipped off his um, laptop, which was. I'm having a fun time on my side of the table right now. Yeah, no, ah! yeah, November 28th, so it is almost time for December. I've probably royally destroyed this. Yep. <laughs> Alright, so we got ep- episode 14 today. I'm looking forward to this one. I had fun researching this one, Tony. Oh, God. So, we're going to tackle an interesting topic that has been on my mind for a little while. Uh, what to do with your beard? No, not yet. What to do with that dumb hair? My hair's not dumb. What to do with that dumb face? Okay, ow. Okay, okay, Tony. <laughs> Jesus. Tony coming in with the punching gloves. God damn, man. I'm just over here just trying to be all like, I got an episode, and you're like, fuck you, pum, fuck you, pum. Like, what I do? Besides the serial killers, what did I do? Nothing. I don't know. But. What about the episode? What's your episode about there, bud? Well, back in episode nine, and well, in our previous episode on episode 13, we discussed gigantism and animals. Oh yeah, that was my episode. That was your episode. And that then was... last ep- last week we talked about, um, you know, potentially living dinosaurs and a bunch of that type of stuff, and how and also with the gigantism and animals, how prehistoric animals were significantly bigger than their descendants are today, yes. which we had that discussion last week. Well, part of that discussion last week. Well, I wanted to focus on a handful of extraordinary animals that are in written, recorded history. These are animals that a name has most definitely been made for them, and we're going to jump around time quite a little bit here. We're going to go... Oh boy, time jumping. Yep, we're going to go as far back as the Byzantine Empire, all the way to 1980s Georgia. (laughs) Yeah, I told you, we are jumping time here quite a bit. Yeah, a little. Now, I mean, there are plenty of extraordinary animals out there. These are the ones I've only selected for this episode. So, not next week, but maybe a few more episodes down the way. Might do another part two on extraordinary animals and pick another five. Just because there's a lot out there and some of them have really awesome stories. That's fair. So, we're gonna... We're gonna go chronologically. I mentioned the Byzantine Empire, so... We're going to start there. Specifically, Constantinople. Now modern-day Istanbul. And as we all know, Istanbul was Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Ow. Tony just let that eye flutter happen. That was beautiful. (laughs) Just just name it one thing, and then just... That's that's it. Just do that. 
so Tony, you and I are by education history majors. <laughs> a little bit. By education, we're smart and we know history. By education, we are history majors, and much akin to a bunch of the bunch of that stupid meme, like ask your ask your man how much he knows about the Roman Empire. Have you have you been seeing that lately? No. There's people. There's people who are like, man, guys really like the guys really do like the Roman Empire. It's like, I went to college for it. I legitimately just it was because our professor talked about it. That's the only reason why I know a lot about it. Yes. Other God, than that, it's like I. It. Other than that, it's I didn't look it up. I don't look it up on the regular anymore. I just know about it because I was classically trained to teach it. I'm not some guy who's like, well, I kind of like history, so I'm gonna. It's like I learned that shit. So I'm, I'm getting <laughs> I a little was there. Uh, feels like it. Anyway, <laughs> under the Byzantine rule, Constantinople faced many outward threats. You know, your Sassanids, your Slavs, your Crusaders, your Ottomans, etc., etc. But there was one threat that didn't come from overland, but from under the water. I was I was really hoping you were about to go into a Little Mermaid dance number there. During the reign of Justinian I, so we're going back, a whale was proving to be quite the troublesome force for Byzantine seafarers in the Black Sea. So you're saying they had a whale of a time? Oh, wait till you wait till you hear about this. You see, this whale, who was given the name Porphyrios, would attack ships and sink them, regardless of who or what was aboard them. Jesus. So we're talking. It could be merchant ships. It could be marine. Could be a military ships. Anything. Hell, it could just be a person going out on their boat. Just like, I'm going to go for a nice little sailing trip to the Black Sea. Nope! That whale did not give a shit. Jesus. The first accounts of Porphyrios come from Procopius, a 6th century historian. So he was there when it was happening. Procopius described the fierce beast as measuring roughly 13.7 meters, or 45 feet, in length, and 4.6 meters, or 15 feet, wide. Okay. It is not... It's a a big boy, obviously. Mm. It is not fully known how Porphyrios got his name, but there are a few theories pertaining to it. Some say he got his name because of a famous charioteer at the time, who was also named Porphyrios. And he was thought to be the greatest charioteer of all time. This would be like naming your pet after someone like LeBron James or Michael Jordan. Well, if he was a charioteer, it would be more like naming your kid Dale. Yeah. I'll let the South slip in a little too hard there. You, naming your kid Dale, your 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 dog Dale or Earnhardt or something. Big time. Oh no, you named the kid and the dog Dale. <laughs> I mean, humans really don't change. They'll name <laughs> no. they name animals after famous people. Another is that he was named after a giant that had waged war against the Greek gods. Again, much much like naming your pet after a character from a story, like my two cats, Aziraphale and Crowley. Or mine. Continue. All named after fucking alcoholic drinks, anyway. There's one batch of kittens. Shut up. Anyway. (laughs) And another, and this is generally accepted as the the most plausible theory 
not exactly the most fun, I would argue, but still a thing, is that the name may have been a reference to his skin color because the because the word porphyria means a deep purple color in Greek. And this giant whale may have had deep purple skin. So quite literally, he quite literally the name may have translated to purple boy. Say it. So if if his skin was deep, real, a real deep purple, and he was wrecking all these ships, was he making smoke on the water? <laughs> <laughs> oh my! I didn't even think of that. Well, I, I mean, did not even think. I mean, of that. listen, if he hit a war, a warship, there could have been fire in the sky. I'm, you know what? <laughs> you got me on that one. I was, re- I didn't even think bow, about that. Bow, bow. Copyright. Anyway, either it's way, three notes. either way, all of these, all of these definitely show one thing about Porphyrios. He was a dick. No, he was viewed as incredibly powerful and he was held in some kind of respect. Which, I mean, that part is a given. It's I a mean, fucking yeah. whale. You should have just named him Thanos. Nah, not at that time. This now, this, the, when, when all this thing, and when I was doing all this, like, oh, the whale is now held in some respect, it made me think of, it made me think of the Byzantines of Constantinople setting up little, uh, tourist shops with tunics that say, I saw Porphyrios, or, <laughs> and I didn't or, die, or I visited Constantinople to see a ship destroying whale, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt and no whale, <laughs> or selling little clay sculptures and wood carvings, little tchotchkes, that sort of stuff. Maybe a mug with an image of Porphyrios or little flags, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I can just see that right now, and all these little, all these dumb little trinkets. It makes me laugh. Just the, just the idea. <laughs> What's going on in your head? Just all the all the stupid tourism knickknacks that they could have had for Porphyrio. Porphyrios, yeah. What you said. Yeah. Now, the idea just popped in my head. I was like, okay, that... I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if the Greeks would do that. But I just... I would love to see that. And I want you to give me a guess how long this whale attacked ships around Constantinople and the Bosporus Strait. God. Ten years? Nope. Higher or low? Higher. 20? Nope. All right, last guess. Um, God, how long do whales live? 50? Correct! You Jesus. got it on the margin. 50 years! Wow. Because of the whale's size, temperament, and lifespan... Ain't nobody messing with him. Many historians believe that Porphyrios might actually have either been a sperm whale... Or a very large killer whale. Good God! And I actually That'd be got a monstrously big, freaking whale or a killer I, whale. Oh yeah, but it got me curious. Like, I wasn't like, are there whales in the Mediterranean Sea? And yes, there are. Mm-hmm. There are actually ten different species of whale, including the killer whale and the sperm whale. Now, I say the Mediterranean. This is up near the Black Sea because the we all know the Black Sea is up there. In, yeah. Up there, just north of Turkey. Mm-hmm. There's actually the Bosporus Strait, which is... A, it connects the Black Sea to 
a smaller sea, then that sea has another strait that connects to the Mediterranean Sea. So Porfirios may have, you know, gone gone up that way and got stuck up that got stuck up in the yeah. Black Sea and that's what like, eh, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna chill. I'm gonna chill here. Well, chill and chill and smash boats. Yeah. But whales at the time were seen as still seen as sea monsters, so they were not nearly as understood as they are nowadays. Yeah. And I could definitely see him being a sperm whale because I looked it up. The average male is roughly 42 feet long and 15 feet wide, 15 feet wide. They live to be 50 to 60 years old. So it's not outside the realm that a bull that a bull sperm whale has gone rogue because they're very solitary creatures. The only ones that are herd whales are the females, the cows are the cows and the calves bulls. On the other hand, unless it's mating season, they're to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Now Porfirios didn't destroy ships all the time. Sometimes he would vanish for periods of time before coming back. So a 50 year span. Swim! Sail! Sail like your lives depend on it! Sail! (laughs) The attacks gained so much concern that Justinian I tried to think of a way to capture or kill the beast, but he never came up with anything. And all of these maritime attacks from a beast of such size and power were not good for Constantinople. Uh, Yeah, obviously. (laughs) But, as luck would have it, the problem solved itself. Because one day Porfirios was chasing dolphins and swam a little too close to the shore. He ran aground. He ran aground and got beached. The mighty beach, man. Yeah. The mighty whale twisted and turned, trying to get itself back into the water, but it kept getting more stuck in the mud. Onlookers spread the word that Porfirios had beached himself while others looked on at the leviathan that had been causing them so much pain and strife for 50 years, others grabbed ropes, wagons, and axes. They threw the ropes around Porfirios, hauling the whale further inland before they tore into him with their hatchets, thus ending the whale's terror once and for all. Some people took portions of the whale home to store for later meals, while others would eat their cuts right there on the beach next to the dead beast. That's a dick move. This makes me also think of Monty Python on the Holy Grail. And there was much rejoicing. Yay! Yay. This also might have been one of the first known cases of a whale actively attacking ships in recorded history. And this has happened before. Like, there have been a few cases where whales have attacked ships. Such as the infamous the Essex. The Essex was a whaling ship. That was from was from New England, I think Nantucket, and its story was an inspiration for Herman Melville to write Moby Dick. I was going to say that was the inspiration for Moby, wasn't it? Yes, in fact, was one of the inspirations. In fact, Porfirios, I had completely forgot this part, had completely um, gone out of my mind. Porfirios was actually mentioned in in Moby Dick. Nice. I was as you know as a, the story of him. I never really. I remember reading that book when I was a kid, and that part really, like, skipped out of my mind. If you're curious what's going on right now, Tony's a little distracted because my cat, Aziraphale, has decided to, um, 
and make, him, make himself known. He's a fat boy. He's having fun right now. He's, He's a fat boy. He's a big purple <laughs> boy. <laughs> and I could see that because I could see that definitely being a a, a perp, you know being called purple because um <laughs> being called purple because in a manner the color blue and all that sort of stuff yeah it, uh, was it gets a, a little muddled in the water it was a lesser it was they the Greeks would describe would describe the sea as wine colored because blue wasn't a thing technically so to speak that yeah that makes sense so gray so a dark gray skin could look like a deep purple like bruising almost so it wouldn't it wouldn't be outside the realm but that was the story of Porphyrios. he died just as savagely as he was a savage creature to the oceans in all likelihood when he was disappearing for time at end he may have gone out to mate that's fair and then come back yeah then he comes back home and just trashes house again. Pretty much. It's like, no, I can fix him. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. I couldn't resist. So now we're going to be leaving the Byzantines behind and leave their destructive whale behind as well. We're now going to jump to World War II. Quite a time skip, isn't it? It's a little bit. 1939. Poland is invaded by Nazi Germany, thus beginning World War II. A few weeks later, a, a few weeks later, a few okay. weeks later, yeah, a few weeks later, Soviet Russia invades, and just a few years later, in 1941, due to the clear political tension with Soviets losing ground in Poland thanks to Operation Barbarossa, Nazis invading uh, Soviet Russia. As well as the Sierkorski and Maisky Agreement, I had to do a lot of looking into this, which was an amnesty for Polish citizens who were under the Soviet's thumb. This freed a majority of Polish citizens who had essentially been POWs in their own country. Yep. After the Polish POWs were set free from Soviet rule in eastern Poland, a Polish army was formed under the informal name of Anders Army, named after the commander... Vladislav Anders. This would eventually become like the Polish ground forces. In the spring of 1942, Anders' army was evacuated from a Soviet gulag through the Middle East to Alexandra, Egypt. I don't know why that took me for a second. Egypt. Along their way, the army stopped at a train station in Hamadan, Iran, where they encountered a boy who had a bear cub with him. The cub, a Syrian brown bear, was uh-huh. found by the boy in the Zagros Mountains. Uh, it just clicked which, what bear you're talking about. Likely, yep. likely its mother had been shot by hunters. Mm-hmm. One of the civilians traveling with Anders' army, the young great-niece of one of the Polish officers, took a, took a liking to the bear cub. Yep. She asked Lieutenant Anatol Tonowicki, damn Polish names, well, you know, it's better than the ones I was trying to pronounce. To buy, to buy the bear cub. The lieutenant traded some food for the cub, and for three months, the bear cub was kept around the Polish refugees in a Tehran camp, under the care of the great-niece who had fallen for the little guy. When those three months were up, the bear was turned over to the military, specifically the unit that would become the 22nd Artillery Supply Company. And it was in this company that the bear cub was given his official name, 
Wojtek. Yep. Which Wojtek was the, the bear. Which was the shortened form of the common Polish name Wojciech, which meant happy warrior. While he was in human care, Wojtek would be fed condensed milk from glass bottles. Some likely emptied vodka bottles, if you're asking me. Most likely. He was also given fruits, marmalade, as well as the food that was eaten by the 22nd Company as he got older. He would also sometimes be treated to beer, which would go on to become one of his favorite drinks. Now, Wojtek was not just a simple animal, not a scene as one either. He had worked his way into the hearts of the 22nd Company. He was given a caretaker to ensure he was behaving for a bear. Besides drinking beer, he would occasionally smoke cigarettes and eat them too. He would drink coffee in the mornings with the soldiers, play wrestle with them, and even sleep in the tents with them. Christ. Even further, Wojtek was taught to salute and would walk on his back paws and march with the 22nd Company. Wow. Yeah, he was already on a badass scale. Like, yeah. this bear's already got me beat. And you beat. Mm-hmm. Everyone, both civilian and soldiers in the 22nd Company and the surrounding units, were so enthralled with Wojtek that he became an unofficial mascot. In 1944, when the 22nd Company had gotten to Egypt, they were told they couldn't bring the bear along aboard the ship that would take them to Italy to fight against Nazi forces in the Italian campaign. Bastards. Due to British regulation forbidding mascots and pets aboard ships. The company they didn't want to abandon Wojtek in Egypt. He'd been raised from a cub to a young bear now. He wasn't just a mascot, he was family. And it's all about family. Dom Toretto would shed a tear right now. <laughs> family. Family. It's all family. about it's all family. about family, Tony. Family. Family. <laughs> to get Wojtek aboard the ship, the twenty second company officially enlisted the bear as private Wojtek. Making him a full fledged enlisted and active military personnel. <laughs> Oh, my God. He would be provided his own serial number, paybook, and rank. Also, a brief side note on this one, his pay would actually go towards his food costs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the only... And like, like before, he would sleep in the tents with his fellow troops, as well as go about assisting with daily duties. Jesus. Soon, the 22nd Company and Wojtek were headed to Italy, where they would be taking part in one of the fiercest fights in World War II, the Battle of Monte Cassino. Before we continue, I should mention that Wojtek has grown, obviously. He was now roughly 200 pounds of pure muscle, and his main job during the Battle of Monte Cassino was transporting 100-pound crates of 25-pound military artillery shells, allegedly never dropping one. Imagine seeing that on the battlefield. <laughs> Just as you're loading your artillery, a bear comes up with another crate of shells. Thank you, Wojtek. He would also collect the spent shells and bring them back to the supply area. Talk about a due diligent bear. A bear works harder than most people I work with. No kidding. Were it not for the 22nd Company and Wojtek's actions, the Battle of Monte Cassino might have been a loss for the Allies. They were if like... it wasn't for you and your... Damn bear. Now, I looked up the Battle of Monte Cassino. It was a multi-day battle, yeah. as some were, but they were kind of like the spearhead that helped turn the tides of the battle. Uh, because of his actions and bravery, not only was Wojtek promoted to the rank of corporal, 
He was adopted as the official emblem of the 22nd Artillery Supply Company, which features a bear carrying an artillery shell. Which I think is some badass shit right there. <laughs> I've met people that have gone through basic training, and that was all they could do. This bear... <laughs> Jesus... This bear's Ooh. this bear's beating the bare minimum, huh? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that wasn't a good note. <laughs> now, nah, oh, come on, it's gonna, it's still gonna get better. Then, in 1945, World War II has finally ended. Well, the 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 German the the European uh, campaign has ended. I'm pretty sure the Pacific yeah, is still going the on. Day is yeah, coming on. Let's see, Voitech and the rest of the 22nd Company were transported up to Scotland where they were all stationed and demobilized at Winfield Airfield on Sunwick Farm near the village of Hutton, Scottish Borders. Which is kind of more southern Scotland, like it's right mm-hmm. next to North England, southern Scotland. Yeah. Like, right up there. After demobilization on November 15th, 1947, Boytek found himself living the rest of his life at the Edinburgh Zoo. He was quite the popular attraction with civilians, journalists, and even former 22nd Company members. I mean, yeah. Who would pay visits to him, occasionally tossing him cigarettes to eat, much like the old days. (laughs) Apparently, he he would also happily respond when spoken to in Polish, and he recognized those from his former unit. Nice. While living at the zoo, Wojtek would sometimes make appearances on children's TV shows on the BBC. Then, in 1963, Wojtek passed away at the age of 21, weighing nearly 500 kilograms, or 1,100 pounds, and being over 1.8 meters, or 5 foot 11 inches tall. He's taller than you. Yep. And I actually had to look into, I got curious, like, how much a standard Syrian brown bear was. About half of all, about half of that. So, uh, those So, So what I'm getting from this is cigarettes are good for your health. (laughs) He he definitely packed on the pounds too. Like oh, I, th- I, mean, I think yeah. I think being a military bear, I think very much that aided to him being a m- bigger than yeah. the average. Well, you know, Syrian. he's just deadlifting freaking crates of ammunition. No big deal. And have you seen? And you know what those crates look like? Those things are huge. Uh huh. They are. They are not. They're not small. No. It's like yeah. picking up a whole you. Yeah. His legacy has most definitely had an impact. There are several memorials to Wojtek that show the bear carrying an artillery shell. These are mostly located in Poland and the UK. I even saw a photo that made my heart really swell with feelings. I was like, okay, I've got I'm shedding a tear right now. It shows, at the time, a 93-year-old Polish veteran, Wojciech Narebski, who had been in the 22nd Company with Wojtek. Oh, I don't like where this is going. And it, it, I see him looking up there, and unfortunately, Mr. Narevsky passed away in January 2023 at the age of 97. So, so Mr. So Mr. Narevsky, I wish I could have, I uh, wish I knew your, uh, your rank. I salute you, sir. And your bear. <laughs> oh, Wojtek absolutely does, does a good salute. I salute the bear, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine being under the bear, like rank wise. You listen to what Wojtek has to say. Ah! I, 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 I don't, I don't know. 
what? Yeah. Yeah, that one, that was a fun one. I was like, okay, this is good. Now, I'll find you the photo of um, the uh, of the uh, monument with the gentleman. Just because it's, just the photo alone very much makes you go, oh. <laughs> ah. Here it is. That's the photo. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, no, like, it, it, I, I truly do. They, they say they, they don't make, you know, men like them like they used to nowadays. It's more so the fact that, like, back then they did have a reason to fight. Yeah. But I'm not going to get into that dis- discussion. That's a very... Different a, type of... Discussion for what we're talking about. We're not talking about man. We're talking about animals. And now we're going to move away from a wartime bear to something... I would say tame and somewhat innocent. Tony, you will have your opinion here shortly. Oh, boy. September 10th, 1945 was just another... I was going a whole different direction with that date. No. Oh, Jesus. September 10th, Tony. Mind mind yourself. Yep, yep, yep. 1945 was just another day for farmer Lloyd Olson of Fruta, Colorado. From what I gathered, he was either preparing chickens to sell at market or he was picking out a chicken for dinner because his mother-in-law was coming over for dinner and his wife had insisted on fresh chicken. Either way, a particular five-and-a-half-week-old Wyandotte chicken was beheaded on this day. Yep. Shortly after yep. the yep. executioner's axe had come down on the chicken, it managed to get up and start walking around like nothing had happened to it. Lloyd Olson was amazed at this now-headless chicken running around, so he put it in a box and named it Mike the Headless Chicken. How original. <laughs> The reason for Mike's ability to walk around without a head was due to where the axe had landed. You see, with chicken anatomy, most of the brain is located a little bit further back behind the eyes. So while most of the head is gone, Mike still had some of the good sensory parts left over. The axe also missed the jugular vein and an ear, so he could hear to an extent. While Mike could no longer see... He still had parts of the brain that allowed for breathing, digestion, and other bo- and most other bodily functions. He was also saved by some miracle by a blood clot that helped him from bleeding out. So truly, this was supposed to happen. This is such a weird story. Man on my wanted end. this chicken dead. God didn't. Exactly. Some weird divine intervention. Mike Wick. <laughs> After the beheading, Mike reeled around for a moment, as you know, anybody as in you do when you lose your head, before settling back to normal chicken activities, such as attempting to preen and peck at the ground for food, even crow or a- attempts, so to speak. <laughs> Although, and even I find this a gruesome thought, the crows were described as throaty gurglings. So what I just did? Yeah, just. <laughs> Well, Mike's up. Kids, time to get up. Go feed the headless chicken. Oh, God. (laughs) As I mentioned earlier, Lloyd Olson put this miracle chicken in a box and proceeded to take care of the chicken, feeding it water and liquid food with an eyedropper. Occasionally, Mike would also get a small piece of corn as a treat. Oh, boy. 
A bulb syringe would be used to help remove some mucus from Mike's throat. The imagery is not exactly pretty. No, not really, no. <laughs> nah. Seeing the opportunity before him, Lloyd Olson set forth on traveling roadshows, featuring his now living headless chicken. Given this was 1945, it should come as no surprise that people were fascinated by a headless chicken being able to walk around like a normal chicken. Albeit a little more clumsy than usual. You think? What's clumsy for a chicken? Seriously. I mean, I've seen chickens, and I... You know chickens. Yeah, they're, uh... Stupid. Yep. Mike the Headless Chicken was also featured in both Time and Life magazines. Lloyd would have put Mike up on display, and it was only 25 cents to see this marvel of a chicken. Adjust for inflation, actually. 25 cents is about three bucks. <coughs> so three bucks to see a headless chicken walking around like... In fact, people... Where's the buck? <laughs> buck, 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 buck? In fact, people would come from far and wide to see this headless chicken. Mike was making $4,500 a month. That's 45 and two zeros. And back then money. And which is roughly 59000 a month. A chicken made more than I make in a month. Yep. And at the time he was alive... Mike the Headless Chicken had an estimated value of $10,000, which is 1945 money, which is a little over $131,000 in today's money. All right, so here's the plan. We're going to chop your head off. Oh, God. But just enough to where you're still alive. Oh, boy. And then I'm going to make money. We're going to Walt Disney my head. Gotcha. No, we're going to Futurama your head. Oh, boy. That's even worse. Apparently. Anyway. Apparently, besides people getting photos taken with Mike the Headless Chicken, or just taking photos of the bird, Lloyd Olson would place a dried-up chicken head next to the stump of the neck and say it was Mike's. Oh, that's... In reality, it was another chicken head that had been used instead, because Mike's original head had been taken away and eaten by the Olson's cat. Cat's gonna cat, man. <laughs> I don't have a comment for that. I thought I did, but I don't, but that's just... Cat's gonna cat. And then for roughly a month or two, Mike would be living at the Olson farm just outside of Fruit to Colorado, living his best life as best as a headless chicken could. But, as all things do, this fantastical story must come to an end for poor Mike. Around mid-March 1947, Lloyd and Mike were on tour, along with Lloyd's wife, Clara. They had stopped into a motel in Phoenix, Arizona to rest up before getting ready for the next big show. Mike started to make a choking noise, either from mucus or snacking on bits of corn. I came across these in both in both instances and sources, so I just, I'll just i put both of them. Lloyd and Clara tried looking for the syringe to help out Mike, but they had accidentally left it behind at the previous day's sideshow. So unfortunately... Mike the Headless Chicken had finally passed away, living for 18 months without a head, ultimately living for roughly two whole years. And he did grow fairly well despite having no head. He was about two and a half pounds when he was beheaded, but he died at roughly eight pounds. So, he, li he, he was definitely well taken care of. Yeah, no kidding. <coughs> Jeez. The, I'm looking at some of the uh, pictures. And it's, like, it's, it's, it's gruesome. 
It's yeah, it's not <laughs> great looking. I wouldn't recommend googling that if you're uh, no shy on the stomach. Yeah, no, uh, and of course. Lloyd didn't tell this to anyone for almost 40 years. He didn't tell this story to anybody for 40 years until he told it to his grandson. He was nervous. Lloyd was nervous about telling everyone about what had happened. He was, he felt very ashamed. I mean, to get around this, Lloyd Olson fabricated the story that he had sold Mike off to another promoter to make a living elsewhere in the U S I mean, I don't blame him. No, It'll get people off your back for a while while you, you know, recoup yourself, get get yourself back in order. I don't blame him for doing that. But Mike the Headless Chicken's legacy doesn't end here. He is a cultural institution of Fruta, Colorado, which hosts Mike the Headless Chicken, Chicken Festival, Festival every year around late May, early June. From I, what I saw with the schedule for the 2023 festival, which has since come and gone, obviously... They had a 5K run, games and vendors, a wing and peep eating contest, and then a few live music mus- music entertainers, mostly bluegrass and country. Yeah. Other events have included the egg toss and pin the head on the chicken. Oh. Tony's head is in his hands. <laughs> oh my god. I looked up that website and I was just like, oh my god, this is too good to be true. This is funny. This is awesome. Just why? <laughs> I mean, why not? Now, now we're gonna now we're gonna moving on to our next animal, and this I think out of all the animals in this list has to be one of the toughest, one of the toughest uh, animals I've dis- I've looked into, and I think you will both appreciate her. And you probably know a little bit about her. And I had to do a lot of research that was very appropriate because, I'm not going to lie, if we have Marines listening, they're going to get on me about this. We're going to... But I had to also stick to the base narrative. There was a bunch of fucking details, dude. But I had to be like, we're going to go to the base narrative. We're going to now go to 1952 Seoul, Korea. The Korean War has been raging for two years at this point. I just hear the MASH theme song playing in my head now. (laughs) And you... And the U.S. forces that were based in South Korea needed pack animals to help the military transport ammunition over the rough Korean terrain. Mm-hmm. And Korea is not like... Korea is mountainous. Korea is the uh, Mars of Asia. It's very rough territory. Yes. Very rough terrains. Upon permission from Colonel Eustace P. Smoke, Lieutenant Eric Peterson, commanding officer of the 75mm recoilless rifle platoon of the 5th Marine Regiment traveled to the Seoul racetrack with jeep and trailer to locate a horse to transport the ammunition. Of course a horse. Of course a horse. There he noticed a chestnut Mongolian mare. This mare, who was estimated to be three or four years old at the time, belonged to a stable boy who went by the name Kim Huck Moon, who had named the horse Achim Hai, which means morning flame. Huck Moon offered up the mare for $250 USD so he could afford a prosthetic leg for his sister, who had lost one of her legs when she had stepped on a landmine. Ouch. Lieutenant Peterson paid the amount in full out of his own money, and it was a very emotional goodbye for Huck Moon, but he wanted to help his sister out, and I do commend the boy for that. Mm -hmm. This may have been a loss for Huck Moon, but it would go to be a massive gain 
for the U.S. Marines. Not long after she was purchased, Ah-Chim-Hai was given a new name. Named after the very weapons and ammo she was to transport, the Marines named her Reckless. <sighs> due to the recoilless rifles also being called Reckless, due to how difficult the rifle could be handled, uh -huh. same could be said for the Marines who would operate the things. Marines being, uh, reckless? No. Keep in mind the recoilless <laughs> rifles used by the Marines during the Korean War were six feet long and weighed over 100 pounds. It would take three to four Marines to handle one. But when you put them to use, these rifles could fire 75 millimeter shells thousands of yards away with surgical precision. So just for note, uh, comparison-wise. Yes. You know that shadow box of uh, my dad of my dad's stuff when yeah. he retired. That big round. Yeah. That's a one hundred and five. Yep. I looked up these uh, seventy-five millimeter. Whew. They ain't. They ain't. Yeah. <laughs> I looked at these. You're I was carrying. Like, you have four men on the ground carrying a small cannon. Yes. That was incredibly precise. That's not terrifying at all. Quickly, the horse, now named Reckless, had become a favorite of the Marines. She had a few of the Marines looking after her. Primarily, platoon gunnery sergeant Joseph Latham was her primary trainer and the person she was closest to, while Private First Class Monroe Coleman was her primary caretaker. You can see why I had to be careful on my details here. There's a lot. Mm -hmm. And I, again... I've got to, if we have people who are Marines who are listening, this is a part of your history. You guys are going to get on to me about this. So I was very particular. I was yep. very careful. You do not mess around with uh, the history of the Marines. No. During oh, her... I can make a joke right now, but I don't want to. <laughs> Save it. Save it. During her training with the Marines, going through hoof camp, as it were, she was taught battlefield survival strategies from laying down to avoid enemy fire, to avoiding barbed wire, to getting to foxholes and running for cover when under fire. She was even taught to head to bunkers when she heard the cry, INCOMING! Oh, Jesus Christ, that's... She was also capable of following delivery routes that she would be shown a few times, and then she could do them on her own afterwards. Nice. Very smart horse. Very. She was also quite the animal, no pun intended. Initially, she was kept in a pasture near the encampment, but due to her gentle nature, she was allowed to roam free amongst the tents, building a family out of the Marines. She would sleep in their tents frequently. There was also no food she didn't like. Reckless had a massive appetite. She would eat anything and everything, so it was best to never leave your food unattended. Oh. She would eat scrambled eggs and bacon and pancakes with a cup of coffee in the morning, she would also eat candy, mashed potatoes, sandwiches, even her own blanket at one point, and some hats that when she wanted attention. I recall, like, at one point she was eating the lining of a helmet after um, a training or something akin to that. Jesus. <laughs> she was also known to drink Coca-Cola and beer. Oh, that was an American horse. Good Lord. A favorite pastime of hers was sharing beer with the Marines after a hard day's work. I mean, you know... Now, as is the case with most in the military, and you can probably attest with your parents, Reckless's baptism in fire would happen before long. Mm -hmm. In a location near the villages of Changdang, of Changdan and Kwot Chan, called Hedi's Crotch, I actually found, <laughs> I actually found, I actually found uh, reports 
from I actually found like an actual report about this from I want to get his name right Randolph McCall Pate who was the commander of the 1st Marine Division at the time. I can go on about this later. He was, he eventually became like the commandant of the Marines. Yeah. But we'll get into that in a minute. But this is at Hetty's crotch. Reckless's platoon would be sent there for a fire mission after reports of enemy trenches were being dug. The mission began, the mission was to stop enemy construction. The recoilless rifles were set in place and Reckless, along with her caretaker, Coleman, were there. The first rifles went off, and Reckless leapt into the air, all four of her hooves off the ground. Coleman was there to calm her, assuring her she'd be okay. The rifles went off again, but Reckless didn't leap into the air nearly as much. And soon, she began to calm around the immense, the intense booms of the recoilless rifles. She even seemed intrigued in how they operated. It's like... (laughs) How's it, how, how's it going, guys? You fire, you're firing number seven? Oh, number six works way better. <laughs> I'm just telling you. But her finest hour came during the Battle of Outpost Vegas, which went on from March 26th to March 30th, 1953. It was during this battle that Reckless made 51 solo trips in a single day, carrying a total of 386 recoilless rounds, which amounted to over 9,000 pounds. Jesus Christ, horse. And traveling over 35 miles in a day. This was over rice paddies and steep mountain trails. This battle raged for three days, and during that time, she was wounded twice. Mm. Once above her eye, the other on her left flank. But these wounds were nothing more than scrapes for the tough mare. (laughs) Who put a flesh wound. Indeed. Who continued her duties of transporting recoilless rounds out to the front lines. And for her bravery, she was promoted to corporal. <laughs> While still in Korea, <laughs> on April 10th, 1954, Corporal Reckless was promoted by the then commander of the 1st Marine Division, Randolph McCall Pate, as I mentioned him earlier, yep. to sergeant in a formal ceremony complete with a reviewing stand. News of Sar- <laughs> Wow. News of Sergeant oh. Reckless quickly made its way back to the States, and sure enough, she had fans who wanted her safely in the States. One of the executives of the Pacific Transport Line, Stan Koppel, even personally offered to transport her on one of his ships for free. After she was tested for horse-based diseases, she made it home. Made it home to the States. And back in the States, Sergeant Reckless made Camp Pendleton, California, her final home. Damn. Here she was given another promotion from Sergeant to Staff Sergeant on August 31st, 1959, by now General... Randolph McCall Pate, the commandant of the Marine Corps. I just... You are right in the face. I feel like this is just like such a Forrest Gump thing. This guy doesn't hear from this horse for years, and he's like, Reckless? You're not talking about the goddamn horse again, are you? (laughs) Son of a bitch. (laughs) Formal thing, and there's just a horse in the thing. Because promotions, at least for when my mom had hers, it was set up almost like a what, like a wedding ceremony. Yeah, you got people in the aisles or on each side of the aisle, 
and then the person being promoted is at the front and family members come down and sit at the front and then the commanding officer of that person comes and then whoever's um, sticking patch or the metal on is usually the last one. I, I want to think that they let this horse into the into the building and is just standing there like, and this guy that has known this horse and has promoted this horse once already just turns the corner and he's like really no one else no one else got is gonna okay it's just me i'm promoting the horse again okay i do have a little bit more about um this reckless was honored with a 19 gun salute and a <laughs> and and a 17 and a 1,700-man parade of Marines from her wartime unit. What the? She's also one of the first examples of animal of animals holding rank in a branch of the U.S. military. Yeah, and then getting promoted twice. She was highly decorated, too. Like, I actually have her... I found all of her stuff here. It's really cool. On her new horse blanket... Which was this? Which lo- she didn't eat this time. This was a, this was like a crimson, crimson and like a gold, crimson and gold, crimson yeah, and gold colors, big time. On her new horse blanket were two purple hearts, a Marine Corps Good Conduct Medal, a Presidential <laughs> Unit a Citation, a Presidential Unit Citation with Bronze Star, <laughs> the National Defense Service Medal, a Korean Service Medal. The United States, the United Nations Korea Medal, a Navy Unit Commendation, and a Republic of Korea Presidential Unit Citation. Her blanket was also adorned with French foregerie, which is that braided cord you yep. see on formal military dress. Yep. <laughs> I the she is so decorated i went to school with guys that were that are veterans that had less medals than that horse (laughs) in her time at camp pendleton reckless was treated and cared for like a vip she was also not exploited for commercial interests such as television appearances in her time there she also produced four fulls three colts and one filly the colts being fearless born 1957 dauntless born 1959, and Chesty, born 1964. The filly was born around, was born on a 1965, 1966, but died a month later and was thus unnamed. Yeah, that sucks. In fact, that last one, Chesty. Chesty was named after Chesty Poehler, one of the most decorated U.S. Marines of all time, and one of the few who was ever allowed to ride reckless. Oh, shit. Reckless retired from active service with full military honors on November 10th, 1960. She was provided free quarters and food in lieu of retirement pay. I mean, that seems appropriate. And I know about Chesty Polar as well. Like, uh, not, not really trying to plug, but just because it was a thing. Uh, Time Suck with Dan Cummins, he covered Chesty Polar and... Yeah, Dan Cummins, if you're listening, uh, also sponsor us, please. Thank you. All right. <laughs> As she got older, Reckless developed arthritis in her back. As somebody who's had horses, you can understand this. Yep, that's uh, that's pretty common. Tony's up away for a minute. There we go. That's a pretty common thing to have happen with horses. Then, on May 13th, 1968, 
She injured herself when she fell into a barbed wire fence. Mm-hmm. While under sedation for her wounds to be treated, Sergeant Reckless passed away. Yep. It was estimated she was 19 to 20 years old. That's not bad for a horse. She was buried with full honors at Camp Pendleton. Posthumously, Sergeant Reckless has been one of America's 100 greatest heroes of all time. Several monuments have been built in her honor, and they are found throughout the states. <laughs> Rest well, Sergeant Reckless. We salute you. <laughs> Can you imagine being like the hundredth guy and the horse is like 97? You're like, how? what the <laughs> fuck? Come on, really? Uh, I did. A, there was actually somebody, I think it was after her baptism in fire. Um, one of the Marines decided to get stupid and ride reckless. That didn't and, go well, did it? Uh, no, I, I don't know. I forgot who it that was. That died that day. <laughs> That man died that Oh, day. they probably put him through the ringer after that. There's no doubts. So, can I make my marine jokes, or should I hold those? Uh, let's see. I mean, you have you have Air Force parents, yes. right? Okay, so, any marine listeners, I know the jokes. The Air Force is a luxury hotel compared to the Marines. The Chair Force, But also, you it. guys eat crowns. So, alright. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, no, it's all in good fun. I have buddies that have been in all four branches. I've worked with people in all four branches. So it, it, I, I can say those jokes because, not that I'm entitled to it, but I get them. I yeah. get the jokes. Both of my grandfathers were in the Air Force. Yeah, during the, uh, the Chair Force. Yeah, during the, during the Korean and Vietnam Wars. Yeah. So, eh, but that's the only connection I really have. Yeah. I, I'm not going to throw much of a stake in that for the no, joke. It's uh but the crowns and oh, yeah, the fact that they had they promoted a horse multiple times. It's <laughs> because the horse was smarter than most. But that was our fourth animal. We have our fifth and final one here. The last of our animals, Tony. <laughs> Your cat. Yeah. It's Tim's cat. We're talking about <laughs> his cats now. The last of our animals, Tony, sends us to Georgia in 1985. The country or the state? State. Okay. The state. This isn't going to go well, I imagine. High overhead in a Cessna 404 Titan, Tom Fuckery was afoot. Andrew C. Thornton II, a former narcotics officer and head of a drug smuggling ring called The Company, based out of Kentucky, was dumping several plastic packages full of cocaine after oh a drug run God, from Columbia. Oh my God, why are we talking about this? There's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> You're not talking about cocaine bear. <laughs> <laughs> after he dropped the cargo over Blairsville, Georgia, Thornton and his accomplice abandoned the plane. Apparently, apparently they did this because the plane was over-encumbered. They had too much cocaine! Oh no, what a problem to have. After Thornton jumped, his parachute failed to open correctly, and he died after a freefall. Well, that's usually what happens when that happens. His body was found in a gravel driveway. Oh, Upon Thornton's person were a bulletproof vest, night vision goggles, a green duffel bag with 75 pounds of cocaine, which was estimated to be worth $15 million. That's million. A of, that's, so, that's a lot of cocaine. $4,500 in cash, some gold coins, knives, and two pistols. Thornton also had a key in his pocket that matched up with the plane. And a brief side note, 
The plane they were flying kept going for another 60 miles before crash landing in Hayesville, North Carolina. Jesus. So, what became of the cocaine that was dropped over Georgia? We all know. We know how this goes. Yep. In December 1985, the body of a black bear was discovered, and it was found this bear had ingested a large amount of cocaine from the plastic containers that were dropped. Agents of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation had come across this grisly sight. <laughs> I'm done with you. Roughly 40 packages of cocaine, each 75 pounds, and each valued around 15 to 20 million back then in 1985. All of them were ripped apart and contents were scattered. It looked like Scarface got there after the bear had died. Scarface gone to camping. Dr. Kenneth Alonzo, the chief medical examiner of the Georgia State Crime Lab, said that the stomach of the bear was packed to the brim with cocaine. But the bear had only absorbed three to four grams into its system before it died of an overdose. Alonzo, not wanting to waste the specimen, had the bear taxidermied and gave it to the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area. Somehow the stuffed bear wound up in a pawn shop where it was allegedly bought by Waylon Jennings. That tracks. I mean, not that sure. Tracks. I mean, that's not sure if it's real or not. That but, would track, though. But I really hope it is because that the thought of that makes me smile so much. And then he passed it along to Hank Williams Jr. and they partied with a bear. That wouldn't surprise me. The bear <laughs> finally made it to what would be its current home. The Kentucky for Kentucky Fun Mall in Lexington, Kentucky. There Kentucky are s- Fun Mall? Kentucky Fun Mall. There I'm are, looking this bear up. Yep, there are some who think that the bear in the mall is not the same as the bear that was found in Georgia due to the apparent state of decomposition. Remember, the cocaine was dropped in September and the bear was found in December, so it was dead for a while. Yeah, but unless the, it found it, like, t- in December. Maybe. But. Remember, that's what I say remember. But... The owners of the mall still claim that the bear is the genuine article. The bear has a couple other names besides Cocaine Bear, such as Pablo Escobar and Cokey the Bear. Brief side note. (laughs) (laughs) I looked up the Kentucky Fun Mall. Yep. And the first thing that popped up was Pablo Escobar, I thought. Escobar. It was Escobar. (laughs) I was like, what is Pablo Escobar got to do with Kentucky? Yeah, (laughs) it took you a minute. That's not bar. Yeah. A brief side note. The owners of the bear claim that the bear can officiate weddings due to Kentucky's marriage laws. I'm not even going to... I'll make marine jokes before I make that joke. This is only part truth. The bear cannot solemnize the wedding, but... Kentucky can't invalidate marriages performed by unqualified persons or bears if the parties getting married believe that the person marrying them has the authority to do so. What the fuck? (laughs) And as you have already touched upon it at the beginning of this segment, it should be no surprise that a story about a cocaine-filled bear was not going to have some fantastical flights of fantasy for some people. Oh, really? As you'll say. <laughs> As earlier in 2023, the comedy horror thriller Cocaine Bear was released. And while it is an absolute departure from the real story, it's just as crazy. I mean, I think it. I think it's still crazy that this drug runner 
this former narc officer, which that doesn't surprise me, a former narcotics officer turned rogue to become a drug <laughs> he smuggler. He knows how to work it. It just had all that crap on him. And then I'm like, wait, hang on. Then again, he would want that because he's doing this at night. He would want the night vision goggles to hide from the police. Regardless. The tracks. The tracks. Yeah. But that was some of our extraordinary animals. Oh, my God. And these were just a handful of the ones I selected out of mostly oh, out of curiosity. I'm sure there's going to be a series on this. I figure we'll do this. A, I figure, you know, if I come across a few more, I can do a part two. What'd you learn? Anything new you learned out of that one? Um, I learned about the horse. I would have thought you would have known a little bit about I think Sergeant I heard Reckless. about it once or twice, but I didn't really look I didn't look into it much. I knew about the bear. Uh, both knew, bears? But yeah, I knew about both bears. Because Voitech and the cocaine bear. The two bears. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> why did you have to end on cocaine bear? Ah, <laughs> eh, what can I say? That's just how it goes. I do know that our next episode this is episode fourteen, so episode fifteen is another serial killer. And I will give <sighs> a hint, we're gonna be heading back to Germany for this one, everybody. So sit tight uh, and enjoy. Ugh. <laughs> Why? Now, that being said, once again, thank you all for tuning in to Tall and Short with Tim and Tony. We hope you learned some pretty new stuff here. This was a lot of good. I had a lot of fun with this research. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I I really enjoyed the Sergeant Reckless stuff the most. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just ridiculous in a cool way, but. Oh, yeah. Man. Bear. Bear. But yeah, but everybody, please leave a comment below. Drop a rate and review. Word of mouth helps us, so please tell your friends, tell your family, tell I mean, your bears. I mean, tell your yeah, tell the bears. Tell your the bears, bears are up there. They'll tell know the something. Tell the horses. Tell the horses and the bears. Maybe a whale if you know echolocation. They mm. might know some stuff. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I didn't know about the whale. Yeah. yeah. Tell I, your whales. I came across that one just by pure accident. Word of mouth is always nice, and. You know, interact with us on social medias on Facebook and Instagram at Tall and Short Podcast. This whole episode, I was redoing the Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> this whole time, I was messing with it, and I was like, I don't know if I can get this done in time. And then it's also, and then also, send us. And if you want to send us an email for suggestions or you know, nice little updates about yourselves or what have you, or stuff related to our topics, please send us an email at tallandshortpod at gmail dot com. Once again, this has been Tall and Short with Tim and Tony. Thank you all for listening. Everybody have yourselves a wonderful day, and be sure to tune in for more Tall and Short. Bye! Bye!